pray together. Lord, because of your sheer grace, many of us here this morning can call you our Father. We were not in your family before. We were children of wrath. We were children of the devil. We were excluded from all the privileges of knowing you and belonging to you. And in your grace and mercy, you came to us through Christ. You accomplished everything necessary to rescue us, to bring us into your family by faith in Christ. And so we are just so thankful to know you as our Father, to know that all the best things about the best of fathers is true of you in an infinitely great way, that you have great compassion on your children, that you are perfectly wise and loving. You do all things well. You always have what is best for us in mind. Lord, I pray for anyone who doesn't know you as their father this morning. They're still outside your family looking in. Lord, that even today you would cause them to come to Christ by faith. That they would have their eyes opened to see who Jesus really is, what he did, why they need him. And that they would put their hope and trust in him alone. And Father, I also pray for anyone who is maybe having a hard time this morning on Father's Day for a variety of reasons, Lord. Maybe a father has passed away recently or has bad memories of a father, whatever it might be, uh, Lord, that your healing touch would be there for those people as well. So Lord, as we open your word, um, I pray for your grace to help us understand it clearly and to desire to follow you uh, in whatever you call us to do. In Christ's name, amen. Later in the service today, six people will be getting baptized. And our text for today will help us understand the significance of what they are doing. So if you have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 21 and 22. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Start with the reality of the flood. Peter connects what he says about baptism in verse 21 with what he has just said about the flood in verse 20. So remember in last week we saw those who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Peter will refer to the flood again in his second letter. If you want to turn over a 
couple pages to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Chapter 3, verse 6 of 2 Peter. Through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Peter had heard the Lord Jesus talk about the flood. Turn to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 36 through 39. Jesus says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. And then one last text would be the author of Hebrews also mentions the flood in Hebrews 11, verse 7. Hebrews 11, verse 7. says, By faith. Noah, being warned by God about the things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So the New Testament clearly asserts that there really was a worldwide flood because of God's righteous judgment on sin in the world. The doctrine of the flood, or the account of the flood, is also a story of how God provided a rescue from the waters of judgment. Hebrews eleven seven says, Noah prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. So Noah and his wife, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and their wives were the only ones delivered from death. As Peter says, they were brought safely through the water. And that leads Peter to explain the significance of baptism. Peter sees a connection between the experience of being brought safely through the water of the flood and the experience of being going through the water of baptism. The word correspond means to be similar in some way. So corresponding to the way God saved eight people from the judgment during the flood, baptism is a symbolic picture of how God saves us from his judgment now. And then he says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Does that mean that the people being baptized today will be saved because they went into this water, but they are not in a right relationship with God until they get baptized? They're still lost until that happens. Or what if one of them doesn't really have genuine faith in Christ? Would they still be rescued from sin and restored to God Because they were baptized, and that's it. So here are three reasons from Peter himself why that is not what he means. First, it would contradict what he has already said about salvation in his letter so far. By salvation, I mean God's complete remedy in Christ for our complete ruin in sin. Do you remember what we saw about being born again, the miracle of being taken from spiritual death 
and being brought to spiritual life. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then verse 23, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. So God causes us to be born again because of his great mercy through the resurrection of Christ, through his word, not through a religious ceremony. And what about forgiveness of sins? Go to 1 Peter 1, starting at 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So we were redeemed, we were set free from our sin by the payment of a price, and that price was nothing less than the blood of Christ not the water of baptism, and we receive this gift by faith. Peter mentions we're believers now. God caused us so that we would have faith and hope in him. Hebrews 11, 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. And then just last Sunday, we looked at the beautiful description of salvation in chapter 3, verse 18. Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. So Peter, along with the rest of the New Testament, is very clear. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Our good works, including religious ceremonies, cannot save us. Only Jesus can save us. Peter himself clarifies what he does not mean by the phrase, baptism now save us, in the very next phrase. He says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. Wayne Grudem says, that is not as an outward physical act which washes dirt from the body. That is not the part that saves you. In other words, the water itself does not have any saving or cleansing power. There's nothing special about this water that does something to a person. Peter then gives us the explanation of what he does mean when he says baptism now saves you, it's not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but it is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Wayne Grudem again says, in other words, as an inward spiritual transaction between God and the individual, a transaction symbolized by the outward ceremony of baptism, We could paraphrase, baptism now saves you not the outward physical ceremony of baptism, but the inward spiritual reality which baptism represents. And then John Piper says, in so far as baptism is an appeal to God, it saves. Paul said in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, everyone who appeals to the Lord will be saved. 
Paul does not mean that faith alone fails to save. He means that faith calls on God. That's what faith does. And now Peter is saying baptism is the God-ordained symbolic expression of that call to God. It is a way of saying to God with our whole body, I trust you to take me into Christ like Noah was taken into the ark and to make Jesus the substitute for my sins and to bring me through these waters of death and judgment into new and everlasting life through the resurrection of Jesus my Lord. God saves you through the work of Christ, but you receive that salvation through calling on the name of the Lord by trusting him. And it is God's will all over the world and in every culture that this appeal to God be expressed in baptism. So think of a wedding ceremony. I know Levi's going to have one here pretty soon, and Tyler Nordstrom's going to have one pretty soon. After saying their vows, the couple is asked, what token do you have of your commitment to keep these vows? And they will respond, a ring. And then they will each place that ring on the other person's finger and say the words, with this ring, I thee wed. So does the ring by itself make a person married? And the answer is no. If a six-year-old boy found this ring after Sunday school and put it on his little six-year-old friend's finger, would they now be married? And the answer is, of course not. A ring without a relationship is just a piece of metal. But if there is a relationship, an appropriate relationship at the right time, then a ring is a very meaningful thing. It's an outward visible symbol of their inward invisible love and commitment. And in a similar way, baptism without a relationship with Christ is just water. But if there is a genuine saving relationship with Christ through faith, then baptism is the outward visible expression of that inward invisible trust in him. I want to look at two other texts that help us see what Peter means about the significance of baptism. First, the Great Commission. Peter was there when Jesus gave his final command in Matthew 28. So I invite you to turn to that text. Matthew 28. Verse 18 through 20. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore... And make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So look at that phrase, baptizing them. Who is the pronoun them referring to? In other words, who is Jesus telling us we should baptize? And the answer is, those who have been made disciples. Baptism doesn't make a person a disciple. A person becomes a disciple when, by God's grace, they embrace Jesus and all that he is and all that he accomplished in his death and resurrection and all that he promises and devote their life to following him. Baptism is the way Jesus 
designed for his disciples to make a public declaration that they now belong to him. And so 10 days later, we see how Peter followed Jesus' great commission in Acts chapter 2. Beginning at verse 37. This is on Pentecost. Peter's preaching to a loud, large crowd. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let me just... read something from Don Whitney on that. Some have taken the words baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins to mean that forgiveness of sins and reception of the Holy Spirit occur at the time of baptism. That is incorrect. When you see a poster that says, wanted John Doe for murder, that doesn't mean John Doe is wanted for the purpose of murdering someone, but he is wanted because he already has murdered someone. Likewise, the Bible teaches here that those who have repented of their sin and believed in Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, should be baptized because their sins are now forgiven. So the passage continues. For the promises for you and your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So that sequence of the Lord calling people to himself, people as a result of that believing and receiving the message about Christ, and then being baptized as a public testimony of their faith in Christ, is the consistent pattern we see throughout the rest of the New Testament, or the rest of the book of Acts and the Testament. The order is always faith in Christ, then baptism as an expression of that faith. Well, Peter started with the reality of the flood, and then he discussed the significance of baptism, and he ends with a statement about the exaltation of Christ. Go back to 1 Peter 3, 22. Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. So in verse 21, Peter had talked about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know Jesus was crucified, and on the third day he rose again. Forty days later, he ascended into heaven. He is now seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, the place of highest honor and authority. And that authority includes authority over all angelic beings. Angels in that phrase is what we probably call the good angels who serve God. Authorities and powers are the fallen angels, the devil and his demons. Peter reminds us that all of them, good and evil, have been subjected to Christ. They've been brought under his sovereign control and dominion as Lord. Here's what Paul said in Ephesians 1. Again, he does this sequence. These are in accordance with the working of his strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, 
which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Well, as we close, we've been talking about salvation, being rescued from sin and its eternal consequences, being brought to God in everlasting joy. Who or what are you trusting in for salvation? If God is convicting you, acknowledge, I need to be rescued from sin. I have disobeyed and dishonored God, and I am under his righteous judgment. In Hebrews 4, it says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So that should sober us. God knows everything about every one of us. Everything. Thoughts, words, deeds, attitudes, motivations. He knows everything. That's the God with whom we have to do. And then recognize, I can't rescue myself by anything I can do, including getting baptized or church activities or any other good deeds. I have nothing to offer or contribute to my salvation. Ephesians 2 says, by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so trust in Christ alone to rescue you from sin and restore you to God Believe his death on the cross is the only way a holy God could forgive sinners. And believe his resurrection from the dead shows he is victorious over sin and death and hell and mighty to save all who call on him. Let me read that passage from Romans 10 again. It says, The scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you that you offer this gift freely. Jesus has already done it all and paid it all. He accomplished everything. It's just a gift to receive by faith. And so I pray for anyone here who has never received that infinitely precious gift of a right relationship with you, forgiveness of sins, eternal life. Lord, that even today they would see their need to have things right with you, not just in this life but in the world to come. They would turn from their sin and turn to Jesus and experience salvation in him. Father, I thank you for those that we'll be hearing from today, the testimonies of how you've worked in their lives. pray that you give them grace as they share their stories with us. Lord, I pray that you'd be um, just with us now as we continue the service. In Christ's name, amen.